Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gayamago land by me, Liam Miller. He, him, here's a minister of the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is supported by Uniting Mission and Education, part of the Synod here in New South Wales and ACT, and I'm thankful for their support. My guest today is the wonderful Natalie Wiggs-Stevenson. Natalie, welcome along. Thanks so much for having me, Liam. Uh, it's great to have you. So for those who don't know, uh, Natalie is uh, teaches contextual education and theology at Emmanuel College of Victoria University in the University of Toronto. Uh, her research... It's explores- quite a mouthful. You can imagine. <laughs> like they fought a lot over all of those little connecting words. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I was like, I, should I say all of that? Should I just skip to University of Toronto? I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to get in a diplomatic situation. I'll, I'll, yeah, oh, <laughs> get me in trouble. Yes. <laughs> um, her research explores how ethnographic methods can help create theological conversations across church, academy, and everyday life. She is also interested in feminist and queer theologies, cultural theories of practice, and practices for decolonizing higher education. Her current scholarly project uses ethnographic research to reimagine systematic theology as a form of performance art, and that's what we're talking about today, her book Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art, which is out now through SCM Press. Check it out, great cover. Natalie, welcome, and and let's let's start talking about the book. Where did this idea for theology as performance art come from? Oh, that's a great question. I think you're the only person who's actually ever asked me that. <laughs> I thought that was like standard, like you know, just like so turn obvious. the turn the yeah. title into a question. <laughs> that's how you start, right? <laughs> You know, my I find my answers to lots of things about this book are, oh, I just really like that thing. And so <laughs> that's where the idea came from. So for me, I just really loved studying uh, performance art in my undergrad in art history. And uh, you know, back then I was sort of a conservative, charismatic, evangelical, and um, the performance art kind of opened my eyes to new ways of thinking about the world and then new ways of thinking about God in light of that. Um, and then especially as you see in the opening to the book, as I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I had uh, Marina Abramovich was performing her The Artist is Present. This was 2010. And it had a live stream from MoMA. And to keep myself, I don't know if I kept myself sane, but to keep myself going, I had her going in the corner of my computer the whole time. And so I think it's just by osmosis. I kind of yeah drew drew in that this this was a really generative metaphor for thinking about what it is we do it arose from the ethnography as well I began to see that as a very collaborative project Mm. and so in my first book I talk about the ethnographic field as performance art and then it grew from there into how ethnography ethnographic field work can also disrupt theological systems as well in this sort of performative way collaborative performative way Mm. So you mentioned the, the ethnographic work as well. So the book kind of weaves together, I guess there's kind of three threads to some extent. There's the performance art. At so, least so, three. At least, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm still working them out myself. <laughs> <laughs> three prominent motifs or something run through. So there's, there's each chapter begins with a reflection on, I guess, an infamous or, or, or famous um, work of performance art. Uh, it also then brings in conversations from a church basement that you had when you were an employee at a church. Uh, and then it also touches on your own, um, like I don't want to put language on it, but like crisis of faith or, or, or a moment of, um, yes, trying to explore your faith in a moment where it felt, it felt distant. Uh, so I guess when you started to sit down, did you have already the idea, okay, these are the three things mm-hmm. that that's going to guide this project or did kind of 
one start just butting its way in as you went? Um, and then I guess as it developed, how did you find that the three really helped complement or push against or rupture um, the work as you as you went through? How, yeah, well, I, I suppose I've been, I'd been working on the project on and off since the field work, so for about 10 years, um, and it just took so much time to get all the pieces to come together. I knew I wanted uh, the performance artworks framing each chapter. I knew I wanted to think about a different way to use ethnographic field work in theological research, let's say, um, a new way to use that that sort of differed from the just many wonderful ways it's been used before. But I was looking for, um, yeah, a, a different way to use that field work. Um, and at different points in the writing, I realized parts of myself were coming into it. And I was kind of, I mean, I, I'm always a character in my writing. It's not the most scholarly thing, but I'm always constructing myself as a character in the text. And just kind of the more I wrote it, the more I realized it's that crisis of faith that's guiding the whole thing. As the affect theory makes its way in, which I didn't, I don't think is as prominent. I'm kind of working on some stuff now, trying to unpack what the affect theory is doing in there. As that came in, I realized more and more sort of the fundamental questions guiding each chapter of the book are ones that I've struggled with in my own faith. And so that started coming to the surface more in in final drafts. But I don't even, I mean, books go through tons of drafts always, but this mm. one, like <laughs> more drafts than I could ever imagine. You know, I didn't know which performance artworks would be in each chapter when I started. Right. It was like, as I, you know, it's an oddly systematic book, but as as I'd work with sections, I'd realize, oh, this one goes here, this one goes mm. here, this one. Um, there were works that didn't make the cut, but things mm. just kept moving around. And the more deeply those threads began to talk to each other, uh, the more they would, which is why there were so many drafts. It's like the performance yeah. artwork would erupt something else. And I'd spend a day on YouTube watching videos of the artworks <laughs> and it would totally restructure what I thought I needed to say about salvation. But then that would go back and change something else. So. It was a very intuitive, yeah, playful process of trying yeah. to get the pieces to talk to each other. Mm, that's really helpful. And I think, so it's interesting that you're talking about like the systematic nature of the book, um, which look, there is, right? Like, you know, like the, uh, we'll talk, we'll talk later about the way, you know, what you say about the father relates to what you say about humanity and, and, you know, the whole way through your Christology is, and the incarnation is, touching on and problematizing and raising questions for all all the doctrines so so it is Ooh, that's an interesting read i like that <laughs> i'm gonna want you to say more about that <laughs> all right um so so there is this systematic thing but it's also interesting the way you point out really early on that um that in the context of systematic theology fragmentation incoherence and rupture might not be such a bad thing, which you know there'd be certain systematic theologians who 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 would balk at such a a, a suggestion, um, or people maybe even maybe more so people who have a um, who maybe have had bad experiences with systematic theology or have a bad mm -hmm. idea of what it is, not necessarily what a lot of the time it actually is. But so talk to us a bit about this: the way incoherence and rupture and fragmentation play, and particularly as you started to kind of um, started to mention there how art played a role in that rupturing, in allowing mm -hmm. you to, re, um, to, to to force you to, to rethink and reframe a lot of what you were working on? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, I think there was sort of a moment in my own 
see, this is what I said. It always comes back to something personal. <laughs> there was something in my own sort of personal, I don't want to say development, but um, experience, let's say, where I came to really value uh, structures and rules and the very things I thought I was trying to work against or, or break. Um, and so systematic theology was one of those. It was the lowest grade I got in my MDiv. <laughs> so like I, <laughs> I did most poorly. It's like it was my only B um, in my whole MDiv. And so it's sort of ridiculous. I mean, maybe this tells you something about me. <laughs> I had to go on and get a doctorate and become a theology teacher. Um, but I just, I hated it. I hated trying to get all that stuff to cohere that didn't really cohere. Um, but then the, but then it started to feel like, well, my options were to do away with the system completely or to, um, or to sort of like just follow everything that it said to work, to get those pieces to fit. And I thought, well, there's value in both sides of that. And what happens if we actually let this system do what it's trying to do, um, to have that very strong structure that we're working with. Um, and then we wrestle with it. So instead of throwing it away or, um, denying that systems can do anything, but if instead we approach them differently, you know, and I, and I think part of that came out of trying to think about justice in a broken world. I mean, that's not what I'm writing about in the book, but realizing that sort of old question of, can you use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house? I mean, that's I'm trying to use, in a certain sense, systematic theology uh, against itself. But I think that's what I think that's what it's supposed to be. It's not. I'm. Yes, I think that's yeah, when it's living. Yeah. It's when yeah. we're continually um, intervening in it in different ways and and bringing it back to life and making it work. That's sort of the mm. dynamic of the academic and the everyday, the tradition and the practice. That's mm. always like they have to rupture each other if we're going to actually hold both uh, with the value and mm. love I think each deserve. Yes. Yeah. And and that came from some art theory as well out of Jacques Rancière, who talks about how art, when it's in its political function, will actually sort of rupture and rearrange a social imaginary. So these social mm-hmm. imaginaries, the social structures within which we live are powerful. Uh, we can't just overturn them. Mm-hmm. Um, if we do, that comes with bloody revolution. There's no peaceful way to overturn them. And so he talks about how art doesn't show us something about those systems, but it actually rearranges how we experience mm. them it changes our perception and so that was part of it as well trying to think about again how do we bring more uh, artistic mechanisms to the ways that we make theology rather than again I think a common way of treating art in theology is to take an artwork and reflect upon it mm. I wanted to think what's the how does art actually work and how can we make theology work similarly yeah I think that's really helpful and comes through a lot and particularly even just not even in the sense of like, okay, I found this art that's an illustration of something that I already believe, right? Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm basically like, you know, proof texting a, a, a lyric um, yeah. or proof texting a, a, stroke of, a stroke of a brush. Um, it's it's actually allowing that to, to yeah, question what is, what are you, yeah, what, what you're saying, what your theological claims you're making, the way you're making them. Um, I think even, I was going to get to this afterwards, but it kind of makes sense now, when you talk about the chapter on ecclesiology. Um, yeah. So a lot of the time we think about like ecclesiology of, of all the doctrines is, is very much a um, reflective exercise. You write about the church um, mm-hmm. or, you know, whether the church that is the church that you think should be, you know, um, 
but as you say there, like and, they, and people that you know have a corollary that like art, art reflects back to us. Um, um, but as you say, art ruptures it and, and actually writes something into being. Um, and so too, you say, you know, ecclesiology is the act of like writing the church into being, not writing about, but writing the church into being. So maybe we'll, we'll you know, jump in there on, talk to us a bit about, about that claim, um, about the nature of ecclesiology and, and how that shaped what, you, what you're up to in that chapter about the church. Yeah, it's, um, so that really comes out of, uh, out of the fieldwork. Um, there's a lineage in uh, critiques of anthropological approaches that um, want to pull apart the idea that there's sort of a one-to-one correlation between what we encounter in the field and then how we write about it. Like the writing is just transparent. We're not actually inventing a new culture when we write about a culture, um, which you know, comes with many power dynamics. It's being critiqued by um, people from sort of across the spectrum on critical race theory, feminist, queer, post-colonial. It was very much a po- uh, colonial critique at the get-go. Um, and so this idea of how do we represent something? What are we doing when we represent something? And I wanted to take that to think, what are we doing when we try to represent the church? I can't, uh, what, which church would I write about? <laughs> the, the, the one that we have or the one we want to have? And there are enough debates and ethnographic approaches to theology between um you know, those who want to write about the church we want to have think that ethnographic theologians are just writing about the church, um, the material church, which isn't the real one. <laughs> and ethnographic theologians want to say, well, you're not writing about the real one either because you're not writing about the concrete one. And so I wanted to write, again, performatively from the space between those two to try to write, yeah, write into being, write into existence as one would do with the writing of a culture um, in anthropology, write into being that that church that doesn't exist, but also does, that's fleeting, that is caught only for a moment in the performance, in the, in the performing of the words as we read it in that moment and bring sort of our different contexts to bear on it. Does that answer the question? I feel like I'm still trying to work out what I was doing there. Like when in the final draft, my husband mm-hmm. read it and he said, is this your idea, <laughs> writing the church into being? And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's my idea. And he's like, it's a really good idea. Like, I know, I know. This has to go to publication now, but I feel like there's implications there that I haven't figured out yet. Mm. Thanks for being surprised that that was my idea. <laughs> but it's, yeah. I'm still playing with it. It's like, what is this performative thing we do? If we think some form of revelation of what's possible and I don't just mean like socially possible but the revelation of what God might be doing among us is actually possible through the writing of theology then mm. well, we just need to a, write better theology but also <laughs> I want to think then what is the power of the act of writing what are we doing mm. are these I mean I, I don't know if I say it anywhere in the book I kind of think of them as writing spells which I know is very <laughs> problematic language for many Christians but this is sort of in we have yeah. no problem with writing liturgies but writing mm. spells these invocations the yeah. is writing into being writing into presence totally that comes like you know when you come to the conclusion you're talking about like you know I don't don't think like okay you've read this book right and that's it's 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 done then and it's like and the the book is a record of like the work you've done it's like the book is a performance the book is a act as you say you know of of this putting this out and, and, and performing this 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 theology this um this transgressive devotion um so i think that's yeah that that, that comes through as well so let's let's jump way back um, okay 
to, so the first chapter is on the father. Yes. Is on God and, and begins with this conversation in the church basement that leads to conversations around Alzheimer's, uh, dementia and, and the like. Um, and so talk to me then about God's faulty memory um, mm-hmm. and then employing cognitive impairment as a framework for considering the power-laden social dynamics through which God might be trying to visit us. Is it, are those my words? Did you yeah, those, that last one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That sounds like something I would say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for anyone who's listening who hasn't come across the book yet, it's probably important before this to say that I am not arguing in this book that God has dementia, <laughs> that there's a question that frames the the whole sort of like descent and reemergent mm. uh, journey that I'm trying to use the book to take people on um, that comes out of this moment of sort of waking up one day and realizing I no longer believed in God. And uh, and uh, just, you know, spoiler alert, I do again. Um, but this book <laughs> is trying to write out of that um, out of that moment where I realized there's a bunch of things I could do to try to regain my faith. I could read this book. I could do this thing. And I was feeling very compelled in that moment to sit with that horrible feeling of loss. Um, and as I sat with it, there was sort of this movement of, I don't believe in God, I have forgotten God, but what it feels like is that God doesn't believe in me. God has forgotten me. And so I had been sitting on this piece from my field work where we had begun to use, we'd been talking one night about um, how to try to understand, wrap our heads around God's eternity, which is obviously something you can't wrap your head around. And one of the people in these classes I was teaching um, shared this story about a vacation she had gone on with... um, where a friend of a friend had, they were at a cabin, a friend of a friend uh, was there who had dementia. And so what the person in this narrative was sharing, Ricky is her name in the text. Um, For a second, I thought I'd said her real name. No, Ricky is her name in the text. Um, (laughs) Was saying, you know, this woman was living with a kind of timelessness because she couldn't sort of anticipate what was about to happen. She didn't Mm. remember what had just happened. So she was living in this timeless state and was, she wasn't romanticizing the woman's experience. It was really sharing it in a compelling, complex way and said, but this is sort of a way of understanding God's eternity. It's the closest we can come to that sort of timelessness. And so this image of um, God living with dementia, that dementia being some sort of version of the characteristic of God's eternity really stuck with me. I tried to write it into the dissertation. I clearly wasn't ready for it. Ended up having to scrap that chapter and do something else entirely. And it has just, it sat with my imagination. So it came back to me when I was trying to make Mm. sense of the loss of faith. The feeling was being forgotten by God. Came back to me as I started trying to write this book. This became a very significant image in my own faith. So all that to say, I'm not saying God has dementia, (laughs) because what would that even mean? Um, But, you know, we've had this arc throughout Christian history of being willing to entertain um, the vulnerability of God, the erosion of of God's power, you know, particularly in the 20th century. I'm drawing on Jürgen Moltmann in this book, trying to make sense of extreme suffering and the powerlessness of God. This arc into disability theology where we begin to... um, really, you know, imagine God with physical disabilities, like through Nancy Iceland's work. Um, But I was struck in the research that I just couldn't come across anything that was willing to uh, think alongside a cognitive disability for God. God is just still too much mind in our imagination, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to think with that. Um, If the experience that I'm having that I think might resonate with others of feeling forgotten by a God 
has a potency to it that explains some part of the affect of Christian faith, um, then how do we respond in those moments? How do we remain responsible is the language I bring up in the conclusion or the final uh, chapter of a theological anthropology in response to that vision of the father. How do we stay engaged with this God who we think has forgotten us? We not think we feel has forgotten us. Um, So then that let me sort of dig into this pastoral care material around how to care for people living with dementia and Um, the different ways we uh, engage with uh, their reality, the reality we're living in, how to sort of work with both of those, not make one or the other primary, which, I mean, even as I'm saying this, this is the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is the language we use in Christianity of the already, the not yet, the holding together um, different realities and trying to live as if they're simultaneously true. And so, yeah, then trying to imagine, okay, what are these patterns and ways that we should be interacting um, as neurotypicals with people? Uh, well, I'm not neurotypical, but how might a neurotypical person interact or someone who doesn't have dementia with someone who has dementia? Um, can those give us hints and clues to how we might interact with God in the space of forgetting? So none of this is trying to make these claims that that's what God is, that's what we are, but we live in this affective space so often, and yet that's not a thing that we necessarily theologize about or from the affective space rather than the problem or the solution, right? Mm. So I didn't want to write God has forgotten or God has remembered. I wanted to write from that ache of Mm -hmm. feeling forgotten by God and trying, trying to respond to God in that. Mm. Thank you. And yes, so so you're bringing up then like the way that then yeah ties into that chapter on humanity um, as you say, you bring in with work, you know, thoughts about attunement and and, and yeah. what it is to be caregiving um, to, to to someone whose who's, whose memory is failing them um, or has gone. Um, I'm curious about like you know, ways that you think you've ever seen or, or yourself have practiced that caregiving, like what that might you know look like, or, or mm. you know glimpses of that that you, that you feel like you've seen or or have heard heard recollected um in 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 the christian life like what does it look like or could it look like for 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 someone to be engaging that act of caring for god um the god who has you know feels like has forgotten us yeah i think that i mean there's two arenas of life in which attunement has become really important to me and so attunement is some people would say attunement and empathy are the same thing. Um, folks who would want to distinguish them would kind of say that empathy can actually take you too far into the other person. Attunement is the capacity to have um, empathy while maintaining good boundaries. And so, and not just for self-protection, but to really honor the fact that someone is experiencing things differently than you are. So it's not walking in their shoes. <laughs> it's walking with them, uh, which, you know, walking in their shoes is a common way of describing empathy, but it's actually working from that place of difference, um, in a really listening and powerful way. And so I think, you know, I've, um, as I was writing this, I, uh, was in relationship with two people living with dementia, um, and you know, one of my greatest fears of the book is that the, that it will be perceived as overly playful with dementia. And I just couldn't bring myself to write about the two people who I was actually, uh, experiencing this with, um, and, and, and trying to remain in a relationship after, uh, I've been forgotten, um, it's, it's very, very painful. Um, but in those relationships, 
and writing this at the same time, I was finding these moments of, oh, we find new ways to find each other. You know, sometimes it, it would be just fine and the person would remember me. Other times it was sort of like we had, I would be trying to tap into our affective connection, whether or not they knew who I was, they knew they, they liked me. <laughs> Something like they, they knew they liked their hand being touched by me. You know, we could sing a song. Um, there are these moments of just needing to follow the lead of the other person um, while still listening into their reality with them. And the other place attunement has become really important to me is having young children. A friend who was a therapist told me that there are psychoanalysts who will say it's actually more important to attune to your children than to love them. I don't know what I make of that, but <laughs> I think attunement is a form of love and that's trying to sort of inhabit the reality of my kids and, and really think what is that they're seeing right now? Mm. What is it they are feeling and perceiving? So, um, and then responding to that, responding as myself to mm. that need that's coming up for them um, rather than responding to the need I think they have or trying to become them in that need, but really trying to actually allow that differentiation to happen um, and discern that. So I think both of those modes of attunement became interesting to me in thinking about divine and human agency Mm. uh, as that mutual attunement. And, you know, this gets tracked. The reason that that chapter can't go right next to the fathers, because we got to go through all the other stuff to get there, but this significance of, um, how borders between divine and human operate and uh, mm-hmm. differentiation, self-differentiation, ecstatic overflow into each other, you know, all that stuff happens in the middle of the book. So then this is trying to come back to right again, and we are other. There can be ecstatic union. That's in mm-hmm. chapter five. Um, but then we come back to everyday life, and that's where the attunement becomes necessary, the deep, deep listening yes. to each other. Yeah, thank you for that. That's really, really helpful. Um, and then acting in the kingdom. That's, I mean, I know that's a very problematic term. I've had a really hard time letting go of it. <laughs> um, so, so listening to what is it that God's trying to do, even though God is so often in our world held back from doing it, listening mm. into being a part of that is mm. kind of what I'm trying to get at there. Yeah. Fascinating. I think another interesting little note in that like chapter you're talking about, like that this whole idea provides a way of thinking anew about why don't Christians get along? <laughs> or why are there so many? Why are there so many just radically different yeah. experiences and expressions of God, or what it means to follow God? And you're kind of, you know, using this like um, image of well, maybe God's not saying the same thing to everyone, um, yeah. as as happens when with when you're spending time with people who's in cognitive impairment and, 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 and dementia. It's like you know you might not hear the same thing about an incident, um, and and it's just another great example of how. You know, as you say, you're not kind of making some existential commentary on, on what has happened to God or what, you know, because, again, what, what would that mean? Um, but by by approaching this and letting, spending that time in how this feels and in the possibility of this imagery and it opens up a whole lot of things that, 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 that press on, you know, really key fundamental questions that often, you know, get overlooked um, mm-hmm. in how do we account for this? Mm-hmm. Well, they're the things it's, I want to play just for five extra seconds with all the things we shut down immediately. <laughs> so yeah, sort of like, can yeah. I stay close to the trouble for a minute? And so, you know, I, you, someone were to say, well, God seems capricious. The response is God's not capricious. <laughs> God totally knows what God's doing. 
And I uh, thought, well, what if we just give five minutes perhaps of thinking, oh, look, I've already stretched it from five seconds to five minutes of thinking maybe God is capricious. If we just stayed in that moment for five hours, <laughs> maybe maybe we could find a way to work together, you know, mm. coalitions. I think that's really, really helpful. So let's move to the chapter on the spirit. Oh, um, yeah. All right. Which, Here excited, we go. I'm excited to talk about <laughs> So if you thought if you thought the flirting with dementia was going to be something, um, yep. get ready, folks. So so there's an cons, uh, extended consideration in this chapter of of the role of the spirit in the conception of Christ. Um, which oh, I, that part, I, yes. I mean, there's, a, there's a few bits. We got we got a, a little time in this chapter. Yeah. Um, but you know, this is a, I think a really fruitful though, as you as you kind of comment, indecent uh, reflection. Um, so talk to us a bit, I guess. I really think particularly what you're hoping to break open in this chapter, particularly as you're trying to, I think, move toward this, what does it mean to have an unsafe way of knowing God? Mm. Um, and, and, you, and you're drawing on um, Beatrice here. He, um, yeah, Beatrice like everyone knows. Yes. Yeah, you know Beatrice. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Mystic Beatrice of Nazareth yes. and uh, Marcella Altus Reed is in there. Yeah. It's a good little mix. It the, is. So, so talk to us a bit about what you're trying women. to break open with this consideration of the spirit, uh, yeah, in this conversation of the conception of Christ and and pushing through that toward how we relate um, through the spirit to God. Yeah. So if the Father and the humanity chapters come together around this question of how do I respond when I feel like I've been forgotten by God and that sort of aching question. Um, chapters two and five, spirit and salvation come together around this question of um, oh, what does it mean to be terrified of God? And I think that for me comes out of, again, having this background in conservative uh, charismatic evangelicalism and feeling like you know, God can just take over you. That's completely fine. And then getting this sort of education um, in uh, feminist theology of like, now we're going to really sort of speak back against sort of classical feminist theology. You know, power is problematic. We don't want to be, uh, you know, God is not an overcoming, overpowering God. God is a, a, a loving, gentle, tender God. And I thought, well, I kind of know both to be true. And I, those are parts of, again, my own faith that I don't want to choose one over the other. I want to figure out how to ha- hold on to both. Um, I won't say integrate them, but hold on to both of them. And so that's the question animating that one. You know, can I sit with the terror of being overcome by God? And what does that look like? And so Mary became really important in exploring that question, you know, because that's that's her, that's her story. Um, and again, you know, this, uh, there's so many parts of this book I wrote that, um, you know, there's some, we might end up talking about the stuff around the virus and being willing to take on a virus. I wrote all of that before COVID. I had to go back in and tidy it up a lot in light of the experience of COVID. Um, but same with this one. I wrote the stuff about Mary, you know, before Me Too broke. And Me Too definitely helped me get it to where, much closer to where mm. I wanted it to be. Um, a Sort of a brilliant uh, colleague of mine, Gerard Gunnis in uh, Norway, had been writing about uh, Mary as a Me Too moment. And I think uh, sort of the conception of Christ as a Me Too moment. And so I wanted to get into that narrative more of well, what's happening there. Right? I don't want to deny that there's a power imbalance at play. Um, you know, I think that there are theologians who 
will do that. Um, sort of say like, God's not overtaking us. This is because God is good. I said, well, again, like, I don't just want to say that. That's not, it's not mm. a particularly meaningful statement for people who've been in those kinds of power imbalances. Mm. And there's no point in denying that that's an unbridgeable power balance when Mary is asked to do this thing. Um, so what would it be to imagine Mary giving consent which we would now say is impossible with that level of power and balance. What would it, what would it mean for her to have given consent to that truly? Can we dig into that? I wanted to dig into that a little bit more. Um, and, you know, we have narratives in queer theory, queer theology, queer theology, queer practice um, around how to navigate and play with power imbalances in, uh, in erotic relationships. And so I wanted to bring those to bear on that moment of, of, of her saying yes. I wanted to understand that moment when she said yes. Mm. In the midst of the terror, because yes. she's this prototype for our prayer lives. I want to know when I'm praying that it's real, that there's danger and wonder and actual life-changing possibilities and a relationship and a mutual one, but and really navigating. If I'm saying there's a mutual relationship there, what do I do with one side of that relationship having a lot more power than I do without then negating the significance of God's power. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. That goes, that is because I want to, you know, I think <laughs> being on Twitter every, every November or so, this very consent discussion is going to, it emerges, right? right? And, and runs from its now course. On, yeah. Yeah. And will, and will. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a really helpful way to think about it and to think about and particularly bringing in the role of the spirit um, as a lover um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, provides it a way through that's not exactly, not a simple like, well, yes, uh, no, God's good and Mary had all the power in the world. Um, uh, and also not simply, yep, it's um, written off as any way possibly a, a story and, and, a, and, a, and a, um, a figure that we can draw near to um, as helpful. So I think, yeah, it is really, really great in that in that regard. Um, so the, the chapter pushes through and uh, I guess you can see the indecent continues um, <laughs> uh, as you turn from you know what the night of Christ's conception to to you know um, bug chasing communities uh, and to viruses and becoming infected as you think and knew about the the two way openness of the spirit mm -hmm. um, which I think is an important aspect in that that the spirit is open both to humanity and to God and thus there can be this mutual movement uh, between the two and 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 you write. Here, I'll just read a short bit at the end. Um, you know, having explored this kind of idea, these bug chasing communities and, and virus, says, um, it is, is it so strange to embrace life-threatening infection as the root of one's redemption? Christians do it all the time, or at least we should. The risk of being infected will, of course, look different for each one of us as, as will what it means to be open to radical alterity. Only unprotected arousal in the spirit can lift our humanity into the timeless abyss of God's own broken memory. Um, so, so talk to us a bit about this move. Um, and again, I guess it's, 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 it's that thing of, you talked before about wanting to stay five more minutes or we're up to five hours. I'm not sure what, yeah. <laughs> say five weeks with those tough, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those tough conversations about God in some way here, you're also saying, I want to stay longer with those communities that we mm. want to immediately knee-jerk, dismiss or reject as holding any way of teaching us something about goodness, let alone something about God, let alone something about 
our salvation. So I think you know, there's, a, there's a similar thing at play here of, of wanting to stay long, which obviously, as you say, this chapter draws on Marcella Althus Reed, who, who, who pushed for this kind of thing to actually think about real bodies and real people and how mm-hmm. we actually live in our sexual lives. Um, so, yes, I, I, there's barely a question there, but an invitation. <laughs> Please respond. But an um, invitation into, into <laughs> just talking a bit more about that because I think it's, it's really a, a wonderful chapter and, um, yeah, and I'm just curious to talk a bit more about it. Yeah, so, um, I mean, to go back to Marcel Altus Reed, um, her in- project of indecenting is trying to pull apart the ways that heteronormative uh, practice and just the heteronormative shaping of the society within which we live shapes our theological imagination and that that needs to be uh, broken. You know, that also enslaves our uh, theological imagination to capitalist imagination as well because of the well, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is, this is an argument that many of us know by now. Um, so, so what she wants to do is break break this in very, I suppose I would say almost violent ways. I mean, people find her her work um, quite upsetting, and and if we don't, we probably should. Um, so I'm trying to trying to do something similar, um, and I often go back to that chapter. And just to double check that I haven't actually condoned the practices that I write about, I keep having these panic moments of, did I say that we should all be doing that by accident somewhere and trying to make sure I didn't? So the indecent in practice that I that I draw on in that chapter is um, a sexual subculture uh, that refers to themselves as bug chasers, and this is a group of um, or group. It's not like they. Maybe they get together, I don't know. But um, the practice involves eroticizing the HIV virus and participating in um, unprotected sex to try to contract the virus, um, which of course leads to its spread as well. Um, and so it's a, I'm again, I'm not condoning this behavior, but I found myself following Kent Brintnell's work around around the practice to be really compelling for thinking, what is it that uh, in me that gets repulsed when I hear that, that kind of a narrative? And, and I spent so much time with it that it sort of became a bit like my daily norm. <laughs> and now that people are reading it, they're saying, I can't get through that chapter. And I think, <laughs> oh my gosh, why did I put it second? Um, but it is like, what is it that's upsetting me there? And, and COVID became really helpful for thinking of this because I kind of was forced to live it um, in a sense of like, why are people going to these stupid COVID parties? Why are people so selfishly spreading this virus that's destroying lives? And it made me go back into this bug chasing HIV piece of why why are they doing it? What is driving them? And wanting to understand um, how, to, how someone would want to eroticize a deadly virus. Um, and Brintle's work around that is this, uh, not wanting to say it's, suicidal ideation and pathologize it in that way but to think about this sort of erotic ruination the willingness to be the desire to be destroyed by something and how that actually resonates with a lot of our christian narratives of um you know dying with christ to live with christ um and that kind of language is actually quite common in bug chasing communities of death and life being deeply deeply connected um and that you know, modern subjectivity, the way in which we understand what it is to be human really depends on a shoring up of self that is always taking a toll on someone else. Um, it's always my capacity to be 
any version of coherent is always dependent upon the incoherence of others. My, my wellness is dependent on others harm. Um, and so the bug chasing moment sort of brings, brings that into very stark immediate contrast. Um, but it's the nexus at which we're supposed to be living as Christians and really questioning what is it that I'm trying to protect for myself socially and then also theologically when I want to resist divine movement in my life. Um, but then what threat in that comes to God as well in God's openness to us? Um, mm. So you didn't really have a question. I'm not sure I really had an answer. No, that was really great. <laughs> Somewhere we just said a bunch of cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I think what was interesting in that chapter was almost like, I think some of what you're like feeling there of like, was it the right move to introduce this conversation into this book is um, parallels to when you're in the conversation of the church basement of, was it the right move to bring up Beatrice? <laughs> like so, like yeah, yeah. With her whole desire to be obliterated by God and yeah. to be dominated and, and all that, 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 exactly that language is there, not only in her, in other mystics too. Um, and, and we have a lot of, and as you say, the folks in that, in, the, in that basement had a lot of trouble with that. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, that yes, although as you say, they they come around in their own yeah. interesting ways. Um, but that yes, that was so difficult for, for for so many people to get. And so I think, as you say, that that's a why is that even in a religious setting, um, this this idea yeah so so troubling for a lot of people. Um, the parallels across, which is why it's yeah, it's such a fruitful chapter. So. Yeah. yeah, and that's I, why it comes back up again in sort of ecstatic, masochistic salvation imagery in the salvation. I'm pointing to chapter five in <laughs> chapter five because it's this, you know, drawing on this philosophical work from Carmen McKendrick around the mystics, so-called mm. mystics, and how um, what we see is obliteration of self is really an intensification of self and yes. ecstatic overflow and, and trying to bring sort of that um, back then into who it is God makes us in salvation. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um it's really wonderful the way this, the, these chapters all speak to each other. So, so look out for that, folks, as you read it. It, it, <laughs> it rewards it. Uh, it rewards reading it um, close together. Um, so the incarnation, I think one's, one thing that's so interesting about what you, you write there is, which I think drives so much of what, what's going on, is the incarnation introduces a problem for God, <laughs> for God um, which I think is just such a fundamentally astute observation that, that one is probably overlooked a lot and two should give us way more freedom than we often let it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 you know, that, yeah, that, that, you know, because we come, you know, we're two something thousand years into this whole thing now. Um, so the idea of God becoming flesh and <laughs> being born and being dependent and being vulnerable to everything and then getting killed, um, it, you know, is somewhat softened by familiarity mm-hmm. um but it's it, it really does open so many questions and problems as you say um that i think you know not only not you don't only explore the incarnation chapter you explore that in, in, sorry in the chapter of the sun you you, you you explore that elsewhere but i guess yeah i'm curious a bit about like what are ways that you know thinking about you know your own work but what you see out there that that you think we often so like the key aspects of that problem that we most quickly overlook. Um, yeah. You know, what, what, what are some of the things that you think you could, you just see regularly folk, we just take for granted, but actually you're like, no, f- <laughs> spend the five minutes. Um, and, 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 and here's at least four questions I can think that, that are not necessarily easily 
resolvable? You don't have to actually like list off these questions, but I'm just I'm just curious about your thoughts on on yeah the, the, this idea of the incarnation introducing a problem and how perhaps we allow it to do so because it's this there be treasure. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's the line that you're referencing began as it introduces a whole problem to theology. And the sort of the more I sat with that, I was like, actually introduces a whole problem into God. <laughs> That's why it's a problem for theology. But we're so far from it. And we just, you know, settled that with the creeds. Here's the ways we can now talk about it. Um, and but actually the reason people were panicking, or one reason people were panicking in those early centuries is because of the problem it caused it caused for God, where we were trying to protect God from God's own choices. Um, and so I, that began to sort of intrigue me. You know, we put the tightest, um, the tightest sort of borders on Christ's body, um, because if we, if we get, let those get permeable, then, then, uh, goodness me, God shouldn't have made that choice because now, <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, everything's on the table. Yeah. Um, so, so, but what are the questions that we don't ask so good? I mean, what do you think they are? You must have one if you're asking that question. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not why I do it. You look panicked there. That's not why I host a podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, no, you need to ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, well, even one, I think, like, you, know, you think about like, so we often want to stress like the full humanity of mm-hmm. Jesus, right? Like that's it's necessary, right? Um, if if this whole thing is going to work, the whole creed thing is going to work, um, and then but then even you 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 know, but we then want to remove so many aspects of what it means to be human. Like so, could Jesus have died of like sudden infant sudden infant death syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, or, or you know, another option is you know. So what does it mean? What was what was Jesus? doing in puberty as puberty <laughs> came in and and as anyone who goes through puberty knows you don't necessarily have a lot of control over your thoughts and, yeah. and you know so what does it mean to or have, your flesh or your flesh <laughs> exactly yeah. yes yeah yeah um you know so what does what does that mean and and what does it mean to think about that as the one we claim was in, in full or perfect obedience um mm-hmm. through his life how much does you know <laughs> how much is what jesus thinks about God and his mission influenced by, you know, his mother and, 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 and those around him, you know, so I think like there's a lot of that stuff. Of, if we start to think about what it actually means to be fully human um, and we think about what it means when we think of ourselves as the, the full aspects of our humanity, that, that there's some things that come up there. I mean, that's just some, but I think that's. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. A, a part of it. Yeah. I think, yeah. So I, one of the things I notice, I, I mean, I think again, like part of living a life in very conservative Christianity and very liberal Christianity and, um, wanting to find the God who lives across both um, mm. is is part of this. You know, I know in some communities, like we cannot talk about Jesus' humanity. It's just this intense, like high Christology, highly divine, um, which is not orthodox. And then on the other side, it's sort of like, well, he was just a really great teacher. And <laughs> yeah. He's fully human and maybe like a little bit divine or <laughs> some special knowledge. Like that's not orthodox either. Mm. And And both... Both frankly, just kind of too boring for <laughs> yes. how great God is. Is that, yeah, yeah. Is that an okay thing to say? It's like it. actually, again, I want to stay close, like build resilience at the place of like, what is it for flesh to be divine? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. That language of flesh is so compelling. Um, 
yeah, I won't even go down that rabbit hole, but this idea that like flesh, even more than body, I think of um, Ashton Crowley's distinction between flesh and body of flesh is not body yet. Flesh is not what we think of as like con constructed body, coherent, gendered, raced, et cetera, body. Um, but flesh is somehow the, the thing that's put together in that construction mm -hmm. and that flesh has divinity to it is, uh, by God's choice, by God's decree, is uh, that our flesh becomes divinized too. Um, that's what our flesh contributes to our divinization. I don't know. Mm. I'm just talking that's, off the cuff now, but no, that's, that's where you right. go. It's like meaty. Yes. It's meaty flesh. It's our animalness. Mm. It's, well, when you um, think about then that like, so like the only stuff in the universe is the stuff that's already been, always been in the universe, right? There's not new. Um, it's just rearranged and, re mm -hmm. and, and, and brought forth. So all that which made the flesh of Jesus, the body of Jesus had like, you know, existed from, from jump. Um, however you want to configure that, but like, and, and it just, you know, being reconfigured and adapted and, and, and reused and recycled into bodies and into the earth and into all that again and into animal and again and again, uh, and then comes there. Um, and oh I guess gosh, the question, blew my mind. and I guess the question <laughs> there is then if, depending on how you configure bodily resurrection and ascension, um, is there a little less stuff in the universe since <laughs> since Jesus has, since like 33 AD? 150 is, pounds less stuff. Yeah, yeah. There I'm just guessing Jesus' weight. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I just assume people were skinnier back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't as much food for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like you know, is, is that uh, at one moment is all of a sudden to be a little less stuff anyway? But like it's 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 as you said, there's a lot of that you can start pulling and working on, which I think. And isn't, I think, as you say, isn't masturbatory, isn't, isn't like just a thing, isn't, isn't just like, um, you know, the thing that academics do to speculate because they have to yes. like warrant their thing. It's, it's, it's. I thought we were back to Jesus's team. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really paused before like, using yes, that word. Yes, he did. Cover that. Actually, I can just note yes, that done that question now. If Mary um, gets to have an orgasm in chapter two, Jesus gets to masturbate in chapter three. I tried to stop myself from saying that and it was already out. I'm going to regret that. I'm already right. blushing. No. This is one thing I have to say. What I write is way more risque than like how I actually feel comfortable talking or being. So when people start asking me questions about the book, I'm just like sweating because I'm much more, I'm much cheekier on paper. That's great. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's, that's wonderful. And I think, yeah, I think, oh, what was it going to, there's some joke, but I can't remember it now. Um, oh, I was going to say. Wait, wait, it's not just it? academic yes. saying stuff. It's like, there's yeah. meaning here. Is what I think you're trying to get at, and yeah, absolutely. And and and, and there's power. something that you push through it, and then sometimes it leads to something really fruitful, and other times it doesn't. But it's it's the pursuit, um, which I think is great. It's the formation that happens mm. in the pursuit. It's mm. the willingness to go to the bit that isn't allowed to. You know, it's like heretics. We're like forty nine percent of the people who are making the decisions, and we mm. just called them heretics. So it's mm. like. Maybe there's some good in that 49% that we could just dip our toe in for a little bit and then then take a swim <laughs> and <laughs> submerge, <laughs> depending on the resilience you build each time. Mm, yeah, that's that's brilliant. Um, well, and this should obviously show, I hope folks are very excited to go and pick up the book. We could talk <laughs> another hour and a half. It's been so wonderful, but um, 
I should let you go and enjoy your afternoon. Um, the book, folks, is Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art, out through SCM Press. Go and check it out. Pick it up. It's, it's a really excellent read. Oh, I want to note we have, a, we have a, a, a very passionate Schleiermarker contingent who listens to the podcast. Oh Schleiermarker <laughs> gets play in, in, the, yeah, in the chapter on the sun, so go and check it out. Yeah, um, but if you're a serious Schleiermarker contingent, you might not like it. I oh, no, just, no. My, my, yeah. my, my Schleiermarker peeps are very open. Okay. To, to have, and <laughs> much, much worse has been said about Schleiermarker and much less justifiably for, for a long time. So the, the, you, you give a good engagement with him. It's really good. And, I mean, like, that's something I really love about the book too is, you know, we talked about the the ethnography, the performance art, your own story, but, like, the breadth of the theological voices that you engage um, from chapter to chapter is is really um, exciting and, and, and commendable. Well, Schleimacher's in there because I was on a, I was walking the Camino and I was trying to make sense of the experience. And one day I just kind of stopped and went... I think Schleiermacher's right about reality. <laughs> so it's not, you know, it's not, I know as an academic theologian, it's not the way we're supposed to, that's not what I'm supposed to do with Schleiermacher. Ah. <laughs> and yet it's like, all right, well, he's helping me make sense of this very moment and experience of God and I've got to listen to that. That is wonderful. That's, that's, that's great. <laughs> that's so funny. I love it. But to be um, fair, I think Bart was right too. Everyone, <laughs> just before everyone goes off on the, <laughs> on that side of the debate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's actually this is the more controversial part not the orgasm masturbation talk. it is it's, it's it now is, we've yeah. got the Schleiermacher and Bart. now we actually have to stop this conversation yes I'm sorry I'm sorry for saying something so <laughs> offensive that <laughs> there's good in both of those guys that's brilliant <laughs> um Nelly is there anything else you want to promote or plug or draw people's attention to at this moment oh my goodness no um are you doing a, is there a devotional um Oh yes, I should say that. I mean, it, uh, hopefully, it's running at some point. Um, so I'm I'm working on a course that will be uh, well. Now it absolutely will be because I'm about to say this out loud. It's going to be completely free. Um, I just think ministers are probably really uh, <laughs> exhausted at the end of COVID. So I'm trying to pull together an online devotional companion for the book, fully free access that just gives people the chance to. Um, rest and rejuvenate a little bit um theologically just something that i want to create to feed ministers souls um mm. i'm so i have a few ministers have had really nice things to say about the book and how it's really helped them um oh, great. to uh yeah to have their own sort of like little theological play mm. Mm. um so this will be that i'm hoping it'll be put together by the end of the year but watch me on twitter i'll certainly yes. be letting you know uh what's my twitter handle at natalie ws um great you'll, you'll be able to find the that's there. a good handle like that's, that's oh i got early. that early on yeah. i was on twitter when it first started <laughs> then i took about 12 years off <laughs> probably the right way to back. do it really you know yeah. <laughs> um didn't miss much um yeah. that's great yeah that's i'm really excited for that i'm i'm one of those ministers who'll say i'm i'm not i'm saying it now who really appreciated this work um yeah one of my favorite things i've read this year is it's really um exciting and fruitful and um and gets you thinking and and I, I i was drawn to it and i think you know as you say one of the things i really appreciate you say is these are this is based on like you know real questions that you were wrestling with um and i think they're real questions that a lot of people wrestle with in one form or another and i think that's that's really helpful and um and if anything one thing that does make you want it really makes you want to get in a basement with a bunch of folk and talk about faith like those stories from from there um you're like yeah man i want to 
I think especially with COVID because of so few of that stuff actually happening. I know. I want to yeah, get, yeah. In, get in the room and, and hash it out. And um, Well, that is the first book. Ethnographic Theology has a lot more of those in it, which is okay. also in paperback now. So oh, if great. you like the church basement, the whole first book is set in the basement. Pretty much. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, folk, uh, you know, uh, check that out as well. Um, well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, hopefully we'll have you back on sometime. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, all best going forward. And, and everyone, we'll see you, uh, see you next week. <laughs>